Welcome to the Naval Institute podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, the editor-in-chief of Proceedings Magazine, and I'm joined by my deputy this week, Bill Bray, the deputy editor-in-chief of Proceedings. Bill, what a great week. Uh, it's been a busy week here. We just finished up the March issue of Proceedings, which is our annual International Navies issue. Uh, we had a, uh, not a record, but we had a very good showing in the International Navy Commanders Respond every year. We go out to the chiefs of navies around the world. We had 22 CNOs or equivalents uh, re- reply to our question about what their navies and coast guards are doing to prote- protect freedom of the seas, to protect international maritime norms and freedoms. Uh, great responses from all of them. You know, we had. UK, which is a normal hitter. We had the French, we had the Swedish and Norwegians and the Japanese and uh, Chileans, Brazilians, Argentinians. Uh, you know, it's a really good uh, package again this year. And that was a, just a terrific question because there's so much going on uh, in the world with, or, you know, both non-state actors, but also some uh, regional nations that are uh, challenging freedom of the seas and the, the norms and behaviors of the UN Convention and Law of the Sea and those kinds of things. So uh, look for that issue. It'll be a special distro out at West. So West 2020 is coming up in San Diego, 2 and 3 March. We've mentioned that a couple of times. If you're in California, if you're in the San Diego area, uh, you can register for West. If you're a Naval Institute member, you get a discount. If you're active duty, you go for free. Uh, we've got the Sea Service Chiefs kicking off on Monday morning, the 2nd of uh, March, uh, with a, a panel discussion that will be moderated by the chair of the Naval Institute, Bob Work, former Deputy Secretary of Defense. Very excited about that. Bill, you and I will be there. Yep. A uh, lot, lot going on. Showcasing the full range of what the Naval Institute does, from conferences to periodicals to podcasts. Uh, it's Naval Institute press books, meet the authors, all kinds of things. So, And our, our news team will be there covering the breaking news that comes from the speakers at West. Yep, absolutely. Looking, looking forward to it. I mentioned, uh, Bill, you've worked, and our new digital content manager, Willie, uh, Gra- Gracie Willett, uh, have worked very hard the last week on a, uh, a special anniversary, 75th anniversary of Iwo Jima. What's that looking like? It looks fantastic. Uh, yes, our, our new digital content manager is already doing Fantastic work for us. So the 75th anniversary of the Battle of Iwo Jima is upon us. Uh, it, uh, the, the first landing was on the 19th of February, 1945. Uh, they actually started the beach surveys and, and some of the precursor work uh, by the 16th. So we'll call it the 16th of February. And it lasted uh, a grueling five and a half weeks uh, till the end of March, uh, March 26th. So what we've done at the Institute is... Uh, showcase a lot of our great content around the Battle of Iwo Jima. So that the page is live now. You can go to a, our website and see it. You can see a timeline. You see a great uh, a timeline with photos, and you can see a, a secondary a photo a montage below, um, and you can see all the content that we have on there, including two oral histories and uh, several of our press books. So it's, an, it's a great portal, I guess, into uh, the Battle of Iwo Jima. You know, check it out. Teach your kids what happened uh, in this momentous battle in the Pacific. For our members, thank you, because the page does highlight the fact that this special collection of content, uh, it one, it highlights everything that the Naval Institute does to preserve and help people learn from the history, the lessons of naval history. Uh, so everything from our oral histories to our photo archives to proceedings in Naval History Magazine to the Naval Institute Press books, which are, you know, probably sine qua non for the, you know, the, the, the naval literature 
on big battles like Iwo Jima. So there's a collection of books that the Naval Institute has published over the years on Iwo Jima. And if you are a person who appreciates the depth and breadth of that material, that content, become a member of the Naval Institute. Your membership isn't just proceedings. Your membership supports all of the mission channels that we do here uh, and preserving and learning from history is a significant part of the mission of the Naval Institute. So uh, those are our uh, public service announcements for today. Uh, let's get to our guest uh, joining us from, from uh, Dallas, Texas today. We have a, uh, a global adventurer, somebody who has been to the lowest lows and the highest highs, uh, Mr. Victor Vescovo. Uh, also commander, U.S. Navy Reserve, retired naval intelligence officer. So we, we got the corner on cool here this week. Um, <laughs> Victor has just completed a, uh, a series of expeditions called the Five Deeps Expedition, where he and his team uh, took, an un, uh, took a manned uh, submersible to the deepest depths of the five world oceans. Victor, welcome to the Proceedings or the Naval Institute podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. So uh, tell us real quick, um, how did this expedition come together? What was the, uh, the driving thought behind it? And uh, just sort of the highlights of the you know, Atlantic Ocean, Southern Ocean, Indian Ocean, Pacific Ocean, Arctic Ocean, how that all came together. Sure. Well, uh, I actually was really into mountain climbing, of all things, uh, for a couple of decades. And as I got a little bit older, I learned that was a little bit more of a young man's game, had a couple of close calls and decided to maybe look at some other adventures. I did some polar expeditions to the North and South Pole, but I did some research and uh, I really was uh, surprised to learn that no human being had ever been to the bottom of four of our world's oceans. And yet there had been two descents to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, the Trieste in 1960 and James Cameron in 2012. So the technology existed to get to the bottom of them, but it had never been done. So I did some research and was really curious just technically what were the barriers were. And what would it take to pull it off? And I like a, a challenge, and you know, I had some of the time, and I and I have personally the financial resources to go after it. And so I put together a plan. And over the last four years, we actually designed, built, tested, and perfected what is now the most advanced deep diving submersible in the world. I bought a former U.S. Navy ship, the USS Indomitable, and we refitted it to be the support ship. And it used to hunt submarines, and now it talks to my submarine. And we took it around the world. So it was just an amazing technical challenge, but also a bit of an adventure in providing, at the end of it, a system that allows us to go any place on the seafloor repeatedly and reliably with commercial certification. And so now this year, in 2020, we're actually exploiting that use, and we're diving all over the world again, primarily to do scientific but also archaeological dives. And, Victor, you say we. So how big is your team? It's a... Uh, Overall, probably about 120 or 130 different people touch us, but obviously we have suppliers and points of contact all over the world. The core team on the ship is probably about 50 people. It can hold about that many, and uh, that's the team that has been really doing the heavy lifting over the last year and a half. And your ship, uh, I'm looking at the website here, so for our listeners, go to fivedeeps.com, and you can see all the details of the expedition, the technology, the science, who the team is, the media, uh, but it says uh, traveling 47,000 miles and completing 39 dives to do what you did, right, to reach the bottom of the five different uh, world oceans, and, and this is going to be, uh, there's a documentary called Deep Planet, which comes out on the Discovery Channel uh, sometime later this month, I guess, if it's not already out? Uh, they're thinking maybe March. It might slip in April. They haven't really told us the date, but our 
dives on the Titanic, which we did kind of as a drive-by because we were in the area and we had a submarine. We did five dives to the Titanic uh, for the first time in 14 years, a man dive, and that'll be airing on the 23rd of February on National Geographic. Very cool. What's it look like on the on the Titanic now? I've I've, I've saw something uh, maybe a year ago or so that about how the Titanic wreck is starting to deteriorate and over time will essentially sort of like disappear because it. You know, I think that's a bit extreme. I think uh, in the modern age of uh, wanting to get clicks for news stories, they went with just one scientist who had a pretty extreme position. But make no doubt that wreck is large. And the process of deterioration is relatively slow. Will certain parts of it uh, collapse, relatively minor parts? Yes, very much so. But I personally, after having visited it, I think that wreck is going to be there for over 100 or 200 years. It's big. Very cool. Uh, tell us a little bit about your DSV, the, the limiting factor. Sure. Uh, yeah, wow. The DSV limiting factor, and I name all the ships, whether it's that or the support ship, the pressure drop. I named them after ships in the science fiction series, The Culture by Ian Banks. So, yeah, I'm a little bit of a nerd at heart. But uh, the limiting factor is, the well, the core of it is a 90-millimeter titanium-thick sphere that can actually hold two people. The two previous dives to the bottom of the ocean by the Trieste and the Deep Sea Challenger, they actually use steel. And that is a great material, but it's extremely heavy. But it is easier to machine and it's cheaper. We went with titanium so that we could actually have a more compact submersible and so it could be on the pressure drop, the support ship, more easily. But it's a lot harder to machine and and quite a bit more expensive. But, you know, we were able to get that done and that was not easy. And then we surrounded it with syntactic foam, which is a substance that's buoyant in water but does not compress under the extreme pressures at the Challenger Deep, which get as great as 16,000 pounds per square inch. Three acrylic viewports. The previous submarines only had one, and that allows myself and the passenger, usually a scientist, to really directly interact with the ocean floor and what we're looking at in a very direct way. Cameras, we took the first 4K camera down to the Titanic. We have high-definition cameras, four of them at least, when we go down to the bottom of the ocean so we're able to record everything. And then we also constructed, as a complement to the submersible, three robotic landers that uh, they actually don't move on their own. They just go up and down, but they actually function as GPS nodes at the bottom of the seafloor to allow me to know exactly where I am. But they also have an independent function of collecting biological samples, collecting water, collecting soil, and taking a lot of video as well. So it's a, it's not just the submarine that did this. It was a system of the sub, the landers, and also the most powerful sonar for full ocean depth surveying that's ever been mounted on a civilian vessel. They all work in conjunction to allow us to map and then dive the deepest points of any ocean. And where, where is the equipment kept when you're not out on an exposition? Where do you have it, you know, uh, house it and um, do what maintenance on it, et cetera? Yeah, the ship actually moves around. It just left a two-month refit out of Barcelona, Spain. We just did some dives in the Mediterranean, and now actually it's going through the Suez Canal on its way to the Red Sea, where we're going to be doing some diving in the next couple of weeks. So the ship just goes where it's needed. The submarine will typically go to either Florida or Spain once a year, so it can be stripped down and recertified for safety. Mm. And is the, the, the submersible, is it, uh, is it a one-of-a-kind? Is it the only one in the world of its type? Yes, it is. Before we dove it last year, the deepest diving submersible was the Chinese Zhaoling, which descended to 7,200 meters. And the deepest diving American submersible is the Alvin. And with its upgrade, it should be able to go down to, I believe, about 6,000 meters. 
So it is the deepest diving submersible available by five, almost four or 5,000 meters. And, and you self-finance this whole thing, or did you get other organizations or nonprofits or science, uh, scientific organizations to come in and, and help you? No, I funded all of it. Wow. Most of our listeners, or many of our listeners, know that um, know the name Don Walsh. They know um, a little bit about the Trieste. We've published on it many times. And, of course, Don has been a longtime contributor to proceedings in, with his Oceans column. And just last month was the 60th anniversary of the Trieste expedition. Uh, there was a ceremony held at the Naval Heritage, History and Heritage Command in Washington, D.C. Don attended. Uh, Bill was there. I was not, but Don mentioned you, Visc- uh, Victor, and I know you've met him. And he, he, you had him out there a little bit. He didn't dive, but uh, so tell us a little bit about that. Oh yeah, Don and I have become good friends. I mean, he's a captain, U.S. Navy, and I, I was a commander, so he does outrank me. But uh, <laughs> you know, since we weren't covered, I didn't salute him. But he actually accompanied us when we did our dives on the Mariana Trench last year. And to, just to put in perspective, the Trieste dove the Mariana Trench in 1960. They were down the bottom for about 20 minutes and came up because they had to get back up before sundown. James Cameron did one dive in 2012. He was the first solo dive on the eastern pool of the Challenger. And we did four dives to the bottom of the Challenger Deep in eight days with our system, which just shows how much more advanced uh, it is and how far we've come standing on the shoulders of those two expeditions that came before us. But we actually were able to get Don in the submarine, and he was pretty impressed with the level of technology that we had. I think his comment was, Victor, I like your office. And so he's just (laughs) a great personality and and such a pioneer, and he's become a a very good friend. And I think uh, your listeners will be very pleased to know that we are going back to the Challenger Deep this summer. I intend on diving all three of the pools that constitute the Challenger Deep a, a total of eight times we're going to try and take down the first woman, a uh, captain in a former U.S. Navy, uh, Kathy Sullivan, who is a former director of NOAA and an astronaut. Wow. She's agreed to join us for that. And as the real big capper, uh, Don can't do it, but I am going to try and take down his son, Kelly Walsh, in the Western Pool where the Trieste dove 60 years ago and take his son down to where his dad went. That's fantastic. Yeah, Don mentioned you. He mentioned the... Uh uh, you're submersible when we were at the, the Navy Museum on the 23rd of January, and he, he mentioned how far the technology had come. And he did say that, you know, they, they went down one time, 20 minutes at the bottom in 1960, and, and that was, uh, you know, about what they could do. And he said, he, he mentioned that you had gone down multiple times uh, over just a period of a couple of days. And, and what, a, what an amazing leap in technology, but I guess that's what, you know, 60, 60 years will do for you. Um, t- talk a little bit about some of the other places. So we started off and you said you were, you were uh, intrigued by this challenge because you realized that a human being had not been to the deepest point of the other four uh, world oceans. Um, and so what, what's it like at the, uh, you know, at, the, at the bottom of the Indian Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, etc.? Well, they're all different. And actually just finding the deepest point in each ocean was actually a bit of a challenge. People just assume you go to Wikipedia and, oh, here's the deepest point. But it was inaccurate. We corrected every deep point for every ocean based on what we just did because we mapped it with the sonar or sent landers down. In fact, in the Indian Ocean, the scientists were debating where the deepest point was, whether it was rather the Diamantino Fracture Zone off the coast of Australia or the Java Trench off Indonesia. No one knew. So we went to both locations and not only did the sonar on them, but we sent landers down to get their physical depth. And they were only separated by about a couple hundred meters. So it was really close. 
But they're all different in character. The Atlantic Ocean, the deepest point is the Puerto Rican Trench, and that was a very old trench. So it was a little bit more salt, uh, excuse me, a little bit more sediment-laden, a lot softer, almost like quicksand. At the bottom of the Southern Ocean, which is much more active seismically, there was a lot more rocks. There was a lot more sheer faces. And then the Challenger Deep was a little bit of an undulating plain. They all had their own unique character. And they all had their own animals, which was also interesting as well, which our scientists found pretty fascinating because the big question was, will the wildlife in all the five deeps be different or the same? Either answer is darn interesting to them because it can show, you know, how much genetics drift across the ocean over time, et cetera. So we learned an enormous amount. And also we did something relatively subtle, which was we ended up taking water data uh, from all the five oceans all within 10 months with the exact same equipment and even with the same scientists. So that allowed us to provide a baseline amount of data on temperature, salinity, conductivity that has never existed before that we can use for climate models or other research going forward. So you've been to Challenger Deep five times and you're going to do going back beyond. Well, I, I personally, well, I personally have gone down Challenger Deep twice. I did it twice. Oh, I'm sorry. Solo. And then that's okay. And then my, uh, co-pilot and the sub-builder, Patrick Leahy, a Canadian, he went down twice. And then I went down to the third deepest point, the Serena Deep, which was only about 100 meters or 200 meters shallower. I did that with a scientist. And then we also, I went solo down the Tonga Trench, which is the second deepest point in the ocean. I did that one solo. And that was close as well. That was only 110 meters shallower than the Challenger Deep. We were holding out hope that it might have been deeper, but it wasn't. But I'm actually trying to do the next eight dives at Challenger as the pilot. So that might get me up to 10 dives on the Challenger by the end of the summer. We'll see. Wow. So I, I, I'm, I'm just going to speculate here that um, uh, Don actually has a column, his column coming up in March, um, the March issue, which we just sent to the printer, approving today, um, is talks about how little we know about the bottom of the ocean uh, worldwide and how, um, you know, it's a vast, unexplored part of the planet. Um, I won't spoil it anymore for the readers, but I would speculate here that for someone like him and you, um, there's too much ocean and not enough time in the future. What would you, you know, what are your priorities in the next, you know, whatever, five, ten years on what, what we should do, we as a human species, to learn more about the ocean deep? What we're trying to do as much as we can. I, I mean, the basic math is the oceans are a little over 70% of the Earth's surface. And of that, depending on which scientists you talk to, you know, 90% is unexplored. So two-thirds of the entire Earth is still completely unexplored. Just with our sonar, uh, which is very detailed, we were able to map an area the size of Italy that had never been mapped before. We uncovered so many subsurface features, whether they be seamounts, troughs, or deeps. I have 130 things I have to name and submit to IHO. So there's that. But to directly answer your question, because of the unique capabilities of this system, we're targeting the very deepest points because no one's ever gone to these points. It is, it is exhilarating being a true explorer where we want to go down to the bottom of the Philippine Trench, the Yap Trench, the Palau Trench. No human being has ever been down there. And in many cases, even robots haven't been down there. And so who knows what we'll find geologically, biologically, hydrographically. It's like being in the golden age of exploration. It's just underwater. It's just really hard to get a system that could do it. Can you describe some of the, the more bizarre things that you've seen biologically, the, the fish or the species uh, in, in some of those places? Yeah. Uh, one specific example 
was one that's on YouTube that people freak out a little bit over. It's a uh, stalk dissidian or a sea squirt that we saw at the bottom of the Java Trench, pretty deep. And it kind of had a gelatinous, translucent top part that kind of looked like a dog's head. But what was unique about it was that it was drifting across the bottom, and it went right across one of our landers, and we captured it. Normally, a stalk dissidian, when it's born, it anchors itself, and it stays there its whole life. This one, we're not sure, and the scientists are trying to figure out if this one can actually grasp and let go to allow it to drift to more fertile feeding grounds. And that would be a unique thing that they haven't seen before. It was pretty definitely a new species. And then another thing that we saw at about 6,000 meters that really baffled our scientists is that drifting across, again, one of the lander cameras, we saw a colony of very small organisms that had somehow self-assembled themselves into the shape of a double helix. And it was just drifting across the bottom of the ocean floor. And they had never seen anything like that remotely in such a deep area. You know, why does that exist? How does that exist? Why do they form that shape of all the shapes that are out there? So things like that, our scientists just threw up their hands and said, well, that's just something we've never seen before. And we came across that on every major dive. How did you assemble your team of uh, scientists? Did they, did they come to you, uh, volunteers from uh, uh, oceanographic research institutes around the world, or were these people that you uh, sought out to, to join the team? How did that, the team come together? It was a little bit of word of mouth. Uh, the people that I primarily worked with in the early days were the submarine construction team. And it's a small community that does deep ocean diving, the so-called hadal depths below 6,000 meters. And they put me in contact with one of the world's foremost hadal experts, Dr. Alan Jameson of Newcastle University, and, of course, offering him the chance to personally go to these depths that he had studied his whole life but never visited. He left it the chance. And once you have a couple of key contacts, everyone started talking together, and we started getting the, you know, the best of the best. And so we had people that knew specific trenches very well, and, you know, we would just invite them on the ship to participate in our dives because everything that we're doing is going into the public domain. I'm doing none of this for any kind of commercial game. Our, again, our mapping data is going to JEBCO. Our scientific data initially is going to Newcastle University, but eventually it will be publicly released. So we're just hoping that it can provide a, a good amount of scientific data for the whole world. I think I read studying life at the most remote places in the bottom of the ocean, uh, the deepest places, is uh, actually feeds the scientific knowledge of trying to understand how life could survive outside of our solar system. Is that, am I wrong about that? No, not at all. That was actually a key topic of discussion that actually targeted some of our dives in the Mariana Trench, specifically the Sirena Deep, which was about 130 miles to the northeast of the Challenger Deep. Uh, that was something that James Cameron actually identified as a, a more unique area than the Challenger because they believed that they spotted some bacterial mats at the bottom of the seafloor. And what's unique about that is at the bottom of the seafloor there, you know, 10,700 meters, it's at about, you know, 15 or 16,000 pounds per square inch. It's about freezing level, and there's no sunlight. So how could there be life there? In fact, for a long time, most scientists thought that it was a completely barren and lifeless area, but it's not. We went down there, me and Dr. Jameson, and we almost immediately saw bacterial mats on rocks, all different colors, reds, oranges, yellows. And the question is, how are they getting energy? And it turns out that through serpentization or other mechanisms, feeding off the methane coming from the rocks, these organisms sprung to life and sustained themselves. We were actually fortunate enough to retrieve a rock from the edge of the Serena Deep, and it's now been uh, studied with an electron microscope, and they've actually found microscopic stalked animals living on and in the rock. 
And so these are life forms that normally you wouldn't think could live in such a hostile environment. But if you go to Europa or some of the other moons in the solar system, one would think that that's exactly how they would come about. And so it gave us a little bit more optimism that maybe there is life off of Earth that can live in these extreme environments because we're seeing it in the extreme environments in Earth. So for organisms that, that exist in, in those temperatures and extremes of pressure, 16,000 pounds per square inch, when you retrieve them and then bring them up to the surface, uh, you know, it must be hard to study them and, and uh, figure out how they live down there when you're studying them up in very different circumstances when you get them up to the, the surface support ship. So is there, do, do all of them change as they come up in, in pressure or, or the pressure decreases or... How is that done? Yes, they do. Obviously, they're used to much higher pressures and, and lower temperatures. So as soon as we get them to the surface, we flash freeze them. That's all you can do. And that, unfortunately, can you know, alter the tissue and all that. But otherwise, they just literally they disintegrate in front of our very eyes. Fortunately, some of them last longer than others. But in the case of these microorganisms that were on the rock that we got the Serena Deep, the smaller they are, the, the more resilient they seem to be. And so that way we're able to uh, study those organisms in, in pretty good detail. But we, we have gotten a lot of We took over 300,000 biological samples on our 10-month mission last year because the landers were so productive about sweeping up uh, a lot of the biological matter. I'm looking at your uh, at the site again, 5deeps.com. If you go to the, the tab called Expedition, you can see um, there's an interesting depth difference. So the deepest places uh, in the world oceans, you know, Mariana's Trench, we've talked about a lot. We've talked about it with uh, with Don Walsh is, you know, 35,000, almost 36,000 feet. Of the five oceans, uh, it looks like the Arctic Ocean has the shallowest, deepest point at right. 18,000 feet. So that's, you know, l- roughly half as deep half. as Mariana's yeah. Trench, right? Yeah. But it's yeah, the st- shallowest deep was the Arctic Ocean, the Malloy Deep. That was five thousand and five five hundred, I believe. And no one had ever, no man visit had ever been there before. But what was really interesting about that one was the amount of wildlife that we got at that shallower depth was just extensive. You can imagine the Challenger Deep. It is so deep that yes, there is wildlife, some amphipods, maybe some holothorians, but there's just not a lot of food, so it's relatively sparse. But at the Malloy Deep, there were some great currents. There was a lot of plankton. We just saw a lot of uh, species and collected an enormous amount. So each one is unique in its own way. And was one of them more you know, challenging than others uh, to get to for your, your vehicle? Yeah, I would say the, uh, the Tonga Trench was actually one of the more difficult just because it's so out of the way. It's, you know, down there east of, uh, you know, New Zealand, and it's a very volcanic, rocky area. So just getting there took a long time. And then it's deep as well. It was just only 100 meters shallower than the Challenger Deep, and it's not really well known. So that was a tough dive. In fact, the pressures were so intense, I actually got saltwater ingress into one of my batteries, and I actually had what was euphemistically called by the sub-technicians a thermal event which is a polite way of saying that there was a fire in the battery. But, uh, you know, at that pressure, at that depth, you can't really have a fire like you normally conceive it. But I had a thermal runaway, and I had to, you know, do the emergency procedure, you know, isolate the battery. Like any good submariner will do, you work the problem. And I just isolated, and I kept on with the mission and, and later went up. But it is disconcerting when you reach the surface, and the first thing the diver tells you is, I think I smell something burning. That's not something you really want to hear. <laughs> that, that reminds me of... Don's story of getting to 31,000 feet uh, depth uh, when they went to Challenger and uh, they, they heard this loud boom and a you know crack and there was a 
not in the pressure sphere, but outside in the uh, the, uh, the 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 hatch and the the ladder way that that they got down to the pressure sphere, and they weren't sure when they got up if they were going to be able to exit or not. And fortunately, it turned out that they that they were able to. But I, I just the, the the bravery of getting to that depth and then hearing something or having an emergency and going, oh, okay, we'll just work the problem. And then in, in Don's case, yeah, we'll just keep going. We'll, we'll get, you know, let, let's just keep going. Yeah, well, there's Don, there's uh, no Don water coming right in. Before I left, you know, he consulted with me and he said, you know, Victor, if you hear something, that's fine. You're, you're okay if you hear it. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, when you don't hear it, you're not going to be good. So he gave me some good advice before the dive. Well, one of the speakers uh, at the uh, 60th anniversary of the Challenger event was uh, uh, mentioned that uh, if something goes wrong at that depth, you're, you know, the human being on board will turn into sort of pink jelly in uh you know a fraction of a second so it's uh you know it, it's an just an amazing amount of pressure at you know at that level and you know you know for the trieste there they were operating in a um a one-of-a-kind submersible and you know now today you're operating a one-of-a-kind and so that's uh that's putting a lot of uh of trust you know in a one-of-a-kind machine to take yourself to these uh these depths all over the world well, in a lot of ways, it's like a spaceship, and I actually like the technical challenge, but we had to think of every possible contingency that could, you know, make us not come back. It's not a fun thing to talk about, but you just have to go over and over what could go wrong and create so many redundancies that, you know, whatever the case is, it's probably not going to happen. A good example was something people don't think a lot about, which is what we would call an oxygen runaway. So I've got four days of oxygen supply inside the capsule. There are all these oxygen tanks on the roof of it. And then the question is, well, what happens if those go free and it just starts bleeding an enormous amount of oxygen in the capsule and I can't stop it? Well, you can breathe pure oxygen. That's no problem. But what is the problem? It becomes a serious fire hazard. That's what killed the astronauts on Apollo 1. And I'm in essentially the same situation. I'm four hours from home. So how do you deal with that? How do you deal with entanglement? What if you're the Titanic and your thrusters get caught up in a metal cable? You can't go outside and fix it. So we had to develop systems where we could eject parts of the submarine in case they got entangled. What happens if you lose all power? Well, in that case, you know, it automatically drops the weight and does X, Y, and Z. So we had to think through all these scenarios. And then I had to train for them for, you know, six, nine months before they let me in the submarine. So the Trieste was sort of a Rube Goldberg thing that, uh, you know, is a balloon under the water that was filled with gasoline, right? And it went down because it was... You know, slightly heavier than uh, than the water when the, and they would you know fill parts of it with water and they would they would bring this metal shot down and then when they got to the bottom they would start releasing the metal shot to get to the top. So how does limiting factor work? It looks much more uh, modern and and complicated, um, but how do you get? How does it submerge and then how does it come back up? Right. Well, the real trick was the syntactic foam, and that's a much more compact way to get buoyancy. They used gasoline because it didn't compress in water, and it was slightly lighter than uh, than water. Uh, the syntactic foam has a lot higher buoyancy quotient, so we're able to make it much more compact. But it works on the same principle, a counterweight system, where the submarine by itself, without any weights, is positively buoyant. It will go up, and it wants to go up. To drag it down to the bottom of the ocean, we put a lot of weights on it. So we have large weights at the bottom of the submersible, and then we actually have some variable weights that are very small. They're only, they look like soda cans, and they weigh about 5 kgs. So as the submarine descends through the water column, when I get about 200 meters off the bottom of the ocean, I will actually, like pulling a trigger, I will eject a handful of these small weights to get myself perfectly neutrally buoyant just off the seafloor. And when I am with those variable weights, 
I can cruise around. And in the case of the Challenger Deep, I cruised around for four hours on one of my dives looking for things. And then when I'm ready to go up, I drop the big weights. And then they allow me to ascend uh, at about a meter or a meter point two per second. And I come back up. So it's the same principle. It's just more advanced and more compact. For our listeners, Victor holds the, the world record. He's a Guinness uh, world record holder for the person who has covered the greatest vertical distance without leaving <laughs> Earth's surface. And he has completed the Explorer's Grand Slam, which I didn't know what that was until recently, but it is uh, pretty uh, phenomenal and pretty impressive, which is he climbed Mount, Mount Everest um, in 2010, um, obviously went to Challenger Deep. Um, he also um, went to the Earth's lowest point in the submersible uh, limiting factor for the total vertical distance of 19,772 meters, and he um, climbed the highest peak on each of the seven continents. So, with that, I have to ask this question, Victor. Commercial space travel is almost upon us. You have any desire to take your adventuring into space someday? Yes, please. <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, I, I've been a pilot since I was 19 years old, and I've always loved flying, and I fly helicopters, jets, you name it. So the chance to get into a capsule and uh, go above the Earth's surface is certainly something I'm very interested in. And I'm already in discussions with a couple of the commercial operators to see just how quickly I can get in. Fantastic. Well, we look forward to hearing from you when you go into space. We also look forward to maybe interviewing you again uh, another year or so after you've done uh, some more dives around the world and discovered some more things. Uh, Victor Viscova has been our guest today. He is the uh, person behind the expedition called the Five Deeps Expedition. Check it out on uh, his website, fivedeeps.com. Victor, thanks for joining us on the podcast. It was really great talking to you. And uh, we were so glad that uh, Don Walsh uh, sort of put us in touch with you. No, thank you very much for your time. I hope it was interesting. That wraps up another episode of the podcast. Look for the March issue of Proceedings coming to your mailbox soon or onto our website soon. And look again for the, uh, the Iwo Jima special coverage page on the Naval Institute website. We'll be pushing that link out in social media channels uh, over the weekend and uh, in one of our newsletters early next week. Thanks again for joining us. And remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll catch you soon. <laughs>